Welcome to the family on the Tom Bernard podcast with Doug Sprinthal, Andy Rappernard, Mike Gelfand. Do you notice I had to add that at the end now because people insist because they can't find the family. It's better branding, yeah. It's better branding, apparently. So it's the family on the Tom Bernard podcast. How dumb are our listeners? <laughs> oh, that's not, well. You, I know that check's gonna bounce. So yeah, though. Why did I never make it in radio? <laughs> yeah, how did that ever happen? In any case, we'll be right back to kick it off right after this. You want a live one, Dougie? Or oh you? yeah, that's right. Um. Car's good. God, let's do an employment ad. Here's Mr. Israel. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I am a little disorientated after flying back yesterday. That's a different story. I think we need to get Jerry and your neighbor, uh, Jimmy. Yeah. And your former podcast co-host, Tevin. Tevin. In for an episode. Because they all work at Walzer Toyota, and they all started selling cars because of this podcast. Yeah, they did. And I think it'll be really interesting. If you're interested in a possible career in sales, you can go to walzer.com, hit careers, and look through the opportunities there. You can always contact me directly at doug at walzer.com, and I can give you some information. It's a different approach. It's a salaried position with a bonus. It's not uh, eat-what-you-kill, commission-based sales. Uh, people that have been in the people industry, servers, uh, waiters, teachers, so on and so forth, even sports writers can do well in our ecosystem. Even sports writers, even Mike. Even sports now, writers. You God know, knows would... I never got along with them. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. It's unbelievable. That's it. Thank you. For, uh, thank you. I thought it was an excellent job. I did. It's one of my finest pieces of audio. No question. Mm-hmm. No question. Michael Bryant, Brad, Sean Bryant, what's the latest? Uh, we're just trying to represent people who've been injured through no fault of their own. We're trying to talk to them before they talk to an adjuster or before they take a settlement that isn't something they should get based upon their injuries. How many people are out there in different, not in the law business, that love to run around scaring people before you even get to them? Well, adjusters will want to settle cases right. and they want to close files. So based upon that, they do what they have to. Um, I think there's a lot of circumstances where they probably act as attorneys where they're not attorneys and they try yeah. to explain people's rights or they give them a certain view that if they look at it. And what I always say is this, if the adjuster really truly thinks the offer they made makes sense, they'd have them come see us. You know, And that's exactly my my question is, you have to understand who has the best, your best interest in mind, correct? Well, you want to know what your rights are. You know, whether yep. or not you decide yep. you're going to hire us or not, that's a choice. It's a free consultation, and you want to understand what your, all your rights are and what coverages you have. And plus the fact, I hang out with you, so you got to be a good guy <laughs> if I'm hanging out with you. Uh, maybe. <laughs> uh, okay. Ladies and gentlemen, Michael Bryant, Bradshaw, and Bryant. Hey folks, it's Brian Zepp, and spring is finally here. If you're like me, you're seriously ready for some wind therapy. Make sure you and your motorcycle are good to go with Dennis Kirk. Whatever you ride, Harley, Indian, Metric Cruiser, or Sport Bike, you'll find what you need at DennisKirk.com. 160,000 parts and accessories in stock, clothing and helmets too. Order before 8 p.m., and they ship the same day. Plus, shipping is free for orders over 89 bucks. Follow Zepp's lead and head to DennisKirk.com. They ship today. We are back on the Tom Bernard Podcast. Doug Israel Sprenthal's with us. It was fun. Mike Israel Gelfand, and he's never been to Israel, so there you go. Have you ever been to Israel? 
No, but uh, I've been to Skokie. Does that count? Skokie, Oklahoma <laughs> is my home. <laughs> That's, That's right. all I know. <laughs> we have our guest on the phone. Jim Birkenstadt. You know, uh, where are you from, Jim? I'm from Madison, Wisconsin. I knew it. You either had to be from Wisconsin or Minnesota with a name like Jim Birkenstadt. Yeah. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> you had to be. There's no doubt about it. So where in Wisconsin are you from? Madtown. Uh, oh, Madison? Madison oh, yeah, did, you go to, did you go to school there? No, I actually uh, grew up in the Chicago area and went to school at Northwestern University. Oh, that's pretty good, though. You're right down the road from the old hometown, so that's not bad at all. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, mysteries in the music case closed. Jim Birkenstadt is B-E-R-K-E-N-S-T-A-D-T, the rock and roll detective, of course. What's this all about, Jim? Well, this book, Mysteries in the Music, Case Closed, examines the secrets, the myths, legends, hoaxes, and conspiracies that I've always found are an intriguing part of rock and roll history. Yeah. And I've, I've spent decades researching this, this sort of stuff, so I um, thought it would be kind of fun to put together a book that uncovers uh, the real truth behind these stories. And my background was as a trial attorney, so I think that that uh, gave me the right tools to really dig into these stories. God, you go all the way back to the beginning of rock and roll, too. The, what, nine, what, 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 what was the yeah. year beginning for, for rock and roll? It was like 52, something like that, 53? Yeah, I think so. That's you know, about right. Uh, people debate which particular song right. was the first rock song, you know, but that's about right, I'd say. So you go all the way back though to the uh, you know the Elvis Presley era. Who discovered Elvis Presley? How did that all work out? Sun. I mean, you cover all of it, right? Yeah, I wanted to cover uh, an artist in each of the main decades of rock and roll. So I think I accomplished that. Uh, Elvis in the fifties and the Masked Marauders, uh, which were supposedly a super group of the Beatles, Bob Dylan, the Rolling Stones, that's the 60s. And then I have other stories that cover the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Jim, it's pretty amazing. Something for everybody. Yeah, well, see, that's good. I started in radio when I was uh, when I was 19 years old. Well, I went to radio school when I was 18, and I started at 19 years old. And uh, then for a while, for about six years, when nobody would hire me because I kept getting fired. I don't know why, Jim, because I'm a very pleasant person. But in any case, I can see that. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, but then I got I went to work at uh, first Areola Records for Scott Shannon, legendary disc jockey in New York. Oh. He was the president of the company at the time, and then went on to Capitol Records for seven years. So. I pretty oh, much wow. have covered every angle of this whole deal, and I've seen some stuff. You want to talk about rock and roll, baby? We could talk all day, Jim. Yeah, yeah. Well, some of these stories may sound familiar to people, but they only know half the half of the story because no one's ever really uh, set about solving these things. So I want to hear you just unload, man, Jim. I love these stories. I'm ready. <laughs> all right. Well, so let's. Um, I think one of my favorite chapters, even though it's kind of a dark one, is is uh, deal with the devil. Did the Beach Boys steal a song from Charles Manson? Oh. And um, many people have kind of heard that the Beach Boys and Manson had something to do with each other, but mainly it was Charles Manson trying to get Dennis Wilson, the Beach right. Boys drummer, right. to uh, sign him to the Beach Boys label, because Manson 
learned all this uh, gobbledygook in prison, in an amalgam of Scientology and religion and how to convince people to do things. And he put it all together and became this, you know, cult leader when he got out of prison. But he thought, because he learned to play a little guitar in prison, he thought, maybe if I can become a signed artist, that uh, I can get the word out there more easily because oh, sure. I can put the, the concepts into song. And <clears throat> at the same time, Brian Wilson, the Beach Boys, uh, you know, main songwriter, hit writer and producer was having mental health issues. Right. He was taking, he was dropping acid. And so the other Beach Boys realized on this next album that they would have to step up and start offering up some songs as well. And probably the person who that was most difficult for was Dennis Wilson, because he was a drummer. Right. Most people, you know, write music with a piano or a guitar. So uh, Dennis needed a little help. And when he ultimately came home one night uh, after leaving a couple hitchhiking girls at his house, turns out they were members of manson's quote family and charles manson greeted him at his own home and welcomed him in and they had all moved into dennis wilson's home and this might sound really crazy but that's kind of how the 60s were you know in yeah. the 60s in california things were very loose and at the time manson was not acting in an angry violent manner he was still sort of this happy-go-lucky tripping guru so he started showing Dennis how he could create songs very easily and come up with lyrics. And Dennis became interested in him and thinking that maybe he ought to uh, record some demos. And what's interesting is I think the real rocket fuel behind it was Neil Young came over one day. Really? And Neil, Neil was very impressed with Charlie Manson. In fact, you know, went to his own record label and said, hey, you ought to sign this guy. And I think that when Dennis saw that, he's like, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to let Neil Young steal this guy away from me. So Dennis took him into a studio, uh, actually had a, a gentleman named Greg Jacobson take him into a recording studio, and he came back out with some songs. And Jacobson is the last living eyewitness to... Dennis Wilson and Charles Manson talking over one of Manson's songs that he wrote and recorded called Cease to Exist. Well, and again, this song this song had song. creepy lyrics. What's that? It says it's an upbeat song, huh? Yeah, it's creepy. <laughs> so, you know, and the words are pretty, 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 pretty girl, cease to exist, just come and say you love me, give up your world. So again, it was a cult, you know, cult recruitment song. Some people could have seen but, that as uh, as portending word. something. Yeah, yeah, maybe a red flag. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah. But Dennis thought it was kind of a cool song that he could maybe uh, turn into a Beach Boys song, and you know, so that whole chapter deals with number one. <clears throat> Did they make a deal? Did they did they agree on a deal to transfer all the rights to Dennis Wilson from uh, Charles Manson? And did did Dennis Wilson provide 
consideration, which is money. And uh, also then, was it in writing? Because at the time, legally, uh, you had to have a a contract such as this in writing under the copyright law. So there were a lot of questions I had to dig into. And what's interesting is the only person who ever publicly came out and talked about this really was Charles Manson. And of course he said, uh, Dennis Wilson and the beach boys stole the song from me. They changed the title. Uh, the title became never learn not to love, which is on the beach boys album called 2020. Oh yeah. Yeah. That was a, that was a gem. Not their best work. No, not their best work, but, um, What's interesting is, you know, they didn't pay him any royalties, and so it becomes both a factual and a legal investigation for me. And for those of you who don't want to read a bunch of legal gobbledygook, the whole chapter is mostly about the Beatles, uh, the Beach Boys, and Manson, and there's only about a page that really explains the legal stuff, and I, I tried to put it in very simple language so that anybody will will understand it and know what really happened you know it's so amazing jim because like i said i've been in radio my whole life except for that seven year stint uh, all seven seven and a half year stint in the record business and mm-hmm. there are some i don't know this probably come as a surprise to everybody there are some goofy bastards in the music business <laughs> i just like to point that out <laughs> Holy. That could be an understatement. <laughs> yeah, that could be an understatement. Yeah, I was actually going to say, uh, you're doing uh, investigative work into musicians. Uh, does that mean you're taking the what kind of dope were they smoking question literally? Yeah. Because I'm guessing there was a whole lot of that involved. I would imagine. Well, I mean, if people are quoted talking about it and it relates to the story, I do it. But I'm not really into the whole sort of sex, drugs, rock and roll type of, right. um, you know, stories, because I think those have all been told. And, oh, definitely. You know, they're all mostly, you know, and there's rumors and you don't know what to believe. But, you know, I don't really care what the people were taking or ingesting. It's more about, you know, what was the mystery? How can I go about, you know, figuring out this mystery and solving it for the readers? See, I like that. You know, like for me... Jim, you could help me out because I've been struggling with this for like 40 years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, is DOA by Blood Rock a positive or negative song? <laughs> That's what I'd like to know. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't looked into that one. <laughs> I, 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 did, I did look into whether or not the CIA might have tried to assassinate uh, Bob Marley in 1976. Oh, I want to hear that and one. And that's, that's an interesting story because... Um, at the time, they dis- the Marley's uh, record label decided that he should that they should film a concert that he was planning to do in Jamaica, and Marley was really trying to plan a concert to bring both political parties together, you know, in peace. And How did that work out? Yeah, yeah, that didn't that didn't work out. <laughs> Not too well right now, well, anyway. It doesn't even work out in our country anymore. Yeah. So, you know, so the interesting thing that I think is what started all this uh, these conspiracy theories is that Marley was actually shot, and so were you know members of his group uh, two days before his concert. 
And Carl Colby was one of the cameramen sent down to film this concert. And Carl Colby happened to be the son of William Colby, who had been the director of the CIA the previous year. Oh, sure. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, people connect dots differently, you know, than, than I do, because I connect dots using real evidence. And others just say, well, he, he was shot, and this guy was there, and he was the cameraman, and he snuck in, and blah, blah, blah. He didn't even have a camera, which is what one of the so-called experts said. So, I mean, I went to someone who was the publicist for Bob Marley, uh, named Jeff Walker, and I said, Jeff, you were there. Did you know that Carl Colby was the son of the ex-CIA director? He said, yeah, I knew it. Bob Marley knew it. All the Whalers knew it. The owner of our record label knew it. We all thought it was pretty funny. He had gone to college, though, to become a uh, you know video photographer, and he, the first thing he ever told us was that, just to kind of get it out of the way. We thought it was kind of funny, and we'd joke about it. He said, so it wasn't a secret that he snuck in, you know. And he said, how stupid would it be for the CIA to send the son of the director down, you know, to do some dirty deed in Jamaica? You know, it become pretty obvious. Well, it was in the eyes of conspiracy theorists, it just, it all made sense, but... Uh, I actually found out, you know, first of all, I discovered through these um, previously classified government documents that had been top secret that we were down there with a bunch of CIA agents who were disguised as diplomats. And in fact, we were trying our hardest, our country, to get the Republican, or I guess you'd call them the conservative candidate, to win the election. So they were down there, and uh, I was able to find the names of these people and their real titles in the CIA, as well as their fake diplomat titles. And I called one one of them up one day, and I said, "Hey, weren't you the uh, weren't you the assistant?" to the ambassador in Jamaica in 76, and he said, yeah. And I said, but weren't you also chief of station for the CIA down there uh, undercover trying to get involved in the Jamaican election? And he started laughing. He's about 85 years old. He started laughing, and he said, well, Jim, how do I answer that question without getting in trouble with my old boss? And I said, I think you just answered the question. Yeah. I think so. Well, if he's a CIA guy, the answer would be you kill him, but... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, there, there, so there's there's quite a lot to this because uh, I go into a little bit of the background of why we were down there. It was, you know, we had multinational corporations digging up half the island, and then the prime minister was a, a democratic socialist, and we didn't like that. We didn't want all the Caribbean islands... Uh, to go the way of Cuba. So, you know, we still had a Cold War going on with Russia. So some things never change. Yeah, it doesn't sound like... So, you, oh, sorry, Jim, go ahead. Oh, no, no, I was finished. Yeah, I, I just I just noticed in, in your descriptor here that you worked on uh, Disney Plus's Get Back. That's pretty impressive, Pally. Thank you. Yeah, that was, that was very exciting. In fact, um, I had worked 
prior to that for George Harrison as his historian. And believe it or not, while George was still alive in the late 90s, the Beatles were planning to release this film in some form or another. And they were just starting out to work on that. And it, of course, didn't come out till last year. But he is the one that recommended me to Apple to uh, help with that particular project. So that goes way back for me. I wasn't involved with Peter Jackson, but I was involved early on in locating uh, lost audio and things like that. Jim, how many people even know about Jimmy Nickel? Uh, again, I worked at Capitol <laughs> Records, so you know I knew about right. I, I don't know. You and I know about Jimmy Nickel. That might be about it. Well, I, that was my previous book, The yeah. Beatle Who Vanished. Yep. And at the time, the reason why I decided to write research and write that book, and it took six years to find out who really Jimmy Nickel is, but uh, I wanted to know because there was only ever like one sentence in Beatle history, which was Ringo Starr got sick at the start of their 1964 world tour mm-hmm. and a drummer named Jimmy Nickel filled in for him. And that was all you could find at the time. So I really had to dig in and try to find old friends, family, and mainly uh, musicians who he played with. And my goal was, who was Jimmy Nickel? What was, how did he be, how did he become in a position to even be considered as a substitute drummer for the Beatles? What did he do in his early years? Then what was it like being an everyday guy where, you know, you walk down the street and no one even looks at you and the next day you get out of a limo oh, yeah. with John, Paul and George and women are tearing your clothes apart. What was that like for an everyday guy? And then lastly, when you're 25 and you've just spent a couple of weeks at the top of the entertainment world and now you're sent back home, what do you do with the rest of your life? And I think for that reason, because of that experience he went through, that's why um, uh, the movie got optioned by Roy Orbison's uh, son and it's being turned into a, a feature film, a motion picture in the near future. Oh, so they are going to do something about this. How long was Jimmy around? Uh, it was only a very, that one tour though, right? <clears throat> you mean with the Beatles? Yeah. Yeah. He had been a, a London session drummer and he right. had played with different bands. Uh, and he was only with the Beatles for 13 days. Yeah. But okay. what's interesting is his session work six months before the Beatles rang his doorbell, uh, was to cover Beatles songs for a label called Top Six. And really? so that's how he knew already all of Ringo Starr's drum parts. So when they brought him to Abbey Road and the other Beatles said, this, let's run through the set list, you know, they literally, their jaws dropped because he knew all of Ringo's parts. And, and it was just, talk about having all the stars align for the Beatles. They were able to go on this tour and not, not you know, be sued by you know promoters all over the world. You know, right. back then it was the show must go on. There was no insurance for people getting ill. You had to show up. When you think about it, how good would he have had to have been? Because all people did is scream anyway. I think if you just <laughs> you play the first, them. count it in, and you're done. That's <laughs> true. Right. Well, you know, that's a, a interesting point because it's it's not how good would he be to the audience because they all knew that. It was the Beatles themselves said, we want a drummer 
that can really play well. Yeah, and, I was being a little facetious. Of, Obviously, they were trying yeah, to I put know. out the best thing they possibly could. But right. yeah. when you look at those early videos Couldn't of them playing, and they've got 10-watt guitar amps and yeah. you know, no PA system, right. and they're playing Shea Stadium, yep. it's like, how that must have been. It probably would have been terrible oh, it to happened be in, there. It yeah. happened at Metropolitan Stadium. Yeah. They, they yeah. pretended oh, yeah. to yeah. play. 65. Yep. Right. <laughs> and you know what's interesting is uh, – there is a little bit of film footage, I think, from the Netherlands of Jimmy playing his first show with the Beatles. And you actually see John Lennon, the rhythm guitarist, turn his back to the audience and and uses his arm in a, a more, um, I don't know, exaggerated way to show Jimmy the rhythm, the two and the four beats that you need to be on as a drummer. And then he turns back once he sees that Jimmy's back on the beat again. But Jimmy didn't realize that the screaming and the noise would cause him to not be able to hear the Beatles. Right. You know, they didn't have big amplifiers. <laughs> or monitors. <laughs> or monitors, yeah. yeah That's amazing. Monitors. And Ringo said he used to just watch the Beatles' butts go up and down <laughs> the backs of the, the other members. And that's how he stayed on the beat. Well, that makes yeah, totally not that. easy. I know my my son-in-law Dan Rasmussen. His father was one of the security guys at that concert in 1965, and the only oh. way they got those boys out of the stadium, they had to get into the bottom mm-hmm. of a, a laundry basket and they covered them up with dirty laundry and rolled them out to the laundry truck. They were all in Hilarious. baskets going out of the out of the stadium. It was yeah, that, that was pretty interesting. It yeah. was indeed. How, how did you get so involved, Jim? Now, do you play yourself? Do you, do you play? Do you sing? Or have you been in a band? Uh, I just play a little ukulele. You ukulele, know, sure. sure. Or sometimes I'll, yeah, there are some, there's a group in Madison where, you know, I'll go and we, we all sort of jam or strum some songs together. But I would not call myself a musician, more so a uh, music historian, I think. So, yeah. Uh, just, but how uh, did I get started? Well, I think that when the Beatles uh, broke up and I had been, you know, really into them and collecting all their albums and things, uh, I felt like there was a loss. And then one day, this is growing up in Chicago, I uh, went down to this one area where it was sort of like a Haight-Ashbury of Chicago, if you will. Mm-hmm. And there was this huge... Uh, store. It looked like the Marshall Fields of head shops. And I went in there because I really loved black light posters. Oh, they had sure, these yeah. really cool posters, and they, of course, had the black lights up and stuff. And, of course, they had all the drug paraphernalia, like bongs and things. But I was pretty young. I don't think I had even experimented at that time. And I, but I saw all these bootlegs up on, on a wall, and I didn't know what they were. And, they, and I said, "What are these? I don't recognize these Beatle records." And he said, "Oh, well, this is the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, and the Beatles live in Washington D.C., and this is the Beatles in a studio rehearsing." And I'm like, "Oh, give them all to me. I want these." So I started collecting all these bootlegs, and I became very passionate about it. And, connected with other collectors and this is really before internet and and the whole viral world so we would do things through the mail write letters about what we knew and exchange information finally i realized that i really knew a lot about this so my first book i wrote was called black market beetles the story behind their lost recordings and so that's kind of what got me started i found out later that the beetles had that book with them 
uh, Neil Aspinall had it on his desk when oh, they yeah. were working on the anthology deal. And then later, uh, George Harrison, uh, I got to work for him and, and do historical research uh, for projects he was working on. And then after he passed away, I continued to work on projects with um, Olivia, his widow, as well as uh, Danny Harrison, his son. And and the Harrison thing led to the Beatle projects. And then I, I thought, when there aren't projects going on, I might as well write some other books. So I wrote a book uh, about the making of Nirvana's Nevermind, Ooh, like a whole behind-the-scenes. Great album. Yeah, and, I, and since it, that album actually started here in Madison, Wisconsin, at Smart Studios. They recorded an early version of it. And so because I knew Butch Vig, and he produced both the early version and then was signed later to be their producer, uh, really helped me uh, get an in with the band and the people that run their label and all of that. So I could give people an inside story of what I thought was the greatest rock album of the 90s. And then the next one was The Beatle Who Vanished, and now the one we're here today talking about is Mysteries in the Music, Case Closed. No doubt. I, Jim, I know we only got about five more minutes, but I, I want to bring it, okay. this up to you and everybody else in the studio. When I was 16 years old, got a job downtown, uh, Dayton's department store. I was a stock boy down there. Um, mm-hmm. And there was a corner of 7th and Hennepin. There was Music Land on one corner and Music City on the other corner. I, at 16 years old, can tell you I never, ever learned more about music than hanging around those music stores, looking at the records. Right. Listen to, well, people can't do that anymore. Young 16-year-old boys and girls can't go to Music Land or Music City and learn from the people that right. are already there. They're always I playing know. music. The All of it. Uh, that is, I think that is going to eventually destroy music completely because there's no... There's no history to anything anymore. It's just little uh, electronic notes, and it's, that bothers me. No, Doug Sprinthal is with us. He's a guitarist and singer and all that stuff. What do you think about that? I mean, it's got to be hurting the music business. I, I, I don't know. Music always changes, and there's yeah. certain eras that stick and a lot of them that just don't. So, yeah. you know, they're still packing uh, music halls playing 18th century orchestral music, but there's not a lot of stuff from the early uh, 20th century that's still popular. And I think yeah. it, it's going to go like that. Yeah. I, I think the Beatles have some stickum. They'll be playing that stuff oh, in yeah. another 150 years. I don't think that uh, some of the stuff you're talking about will, but but music's always yeah. been like that. Can I... Uh, yeah. Who's that, Andy? Doug's guests. Scott. Oh, 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 Scott Lambert's here. Well, he can come in if you want. I mean, we only got ten more. I minutes. don't like him very much. Okay, well, never mind. Uh, never mind. That's that's right. But no, I mean, I, I'll give you an example. Unlike Jim. you, sir, you're fabulous. Yeah, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, uh, Jim, I, I've told this story before, but this is exactly part of what I'm talking about. The the young teenage music community you kind of felt part of that you that you were part right. of the teenagers musical world because you go back and yep. forth i'm standing at one time and i'm just going to quote the young women i loved it i thought it was fantastic i'm there looking at uh i was in a sunshine superman i remember they were playing it at oh, in yeah. the donovan donovan sunshine donovan. superman yep. and these two young african-american girls came in they were probably about my age about 15 16 years old 
and they're mm-hmm. looking at stuff and they're talking to me and we're just having a great time. Oh, you really like uh, that Sunshine Superman, do you? I said, yeah, I think it's a pretty cool song. And they were very, very friendly. And they walked over mm-hmm. and one of them picked up an album cover, which we don't have anymore either. But well, yeah. we, we have them, but they're in very specific places. She picked it up and looked at a picture of Grace Jones on the front of her album. <laughs> and she yeah. said, that girl is purple. And the other one said, seriously purple. <laughs> <laughs> Which, what, I'll never forget that. That was part of rock and roll to me. The, these two very friendly yeah. young, young girls, 15, 16 years old. Very, yeah. very funny, though. I but, thought it was hilarious. Back well, to the 18th century. You know, I, go ahead, sorry. I was just going to say, one of the, the things that just, you know, you said that sparked my memory of yep. uh, people spreading information to each other about these albums was I had the good fortune of having the principal send me to breakfast club several more oh, early sure. mornings. I don't know what I could have done wrong, but uh, my, and I'd tell my parents, oh yeah, I'm going there, going to high school to study early this morning. Oh good, good Jim. But what we used to do, all of us, uh, you know, bad guys that were in Breakfast Club, was bring albums there and turn each other on to music. And I learned, I remember learning about the band Traffic in Breakfast Club and then getting the album and just being blown away. Oh, and sure. Like, sure. Wow, you know, I don't get this education anywhere else in school. Just Breakfast Club. No, that's it. That's exactly it. Doug, you had a story? Yeah, back to the 18th century. I saw a meme recently, and Beethoven's in front of a huge, packed crowd, and he goes, who's ready to hear a symphony? And then he says, I can't hear you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the dog can hear you. Jim, what are you, torturing your dog? What are you doing? She loves to go to the door and bark, so there we go. Uh, Well, ours does, too, believe me. I thought I was going to make it the whole interview without the dog barking. Oh, no, believe me, our dog, if if he sees a leaf rolling through the yard, he gets pissed off. It's unbelievable. I know. I guess uh, they all want to protect us. All right, kind of tied in. Yeah, the whole whole thing about sharing is is what made Louie Louie, which is another chapter in the book, so interesting because... People actually went to school and compared their idea of the lyrics, and then that led to the FBI having to get involved and say, oh, this could be obscene. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. There's no question about it. Jim Birkenstad, ladies and gentlemen, B-E-R-K-E-N-S-T-A-D-T, the rock and roll detective. Jim, thank you so much. Mysteries in the Music, Case Closed, and many other books. Jim, thank you so much for your time today. Always love talking about rock and roll, man. Me too. Well, thanks so much for having me on. You guys are great, and uh, I I hope you keep on rocking. We'll get it done, sir. Have a good day. We you should too. Thank a, you. Take a break. Be right back in a couple minutes with the family. Dan Chesky's here from Dan Southside Marine. It won't be long now until we start seeing boats on the water. Warmer temps and open water are coming soon, Tom. We have inventory in stock now from Alumacraft, Premier, Avalon, and Manitou with more arriving daily. What's the secret to finding a boat you're looking for this year, Dan? My recommendation is to shop now, pick a model, put your name on it. Our team of pros at Dan Southside Marine will have the knowledge and experience to get the boat you want equipped the way you want it equipped. What about financing options? Right now, we are offering low-interest financing options up to 144 months with qualified credit. 
Ask for details when you visit the store. Alumacraft Fishing Boats, Premier, Avalon, and Manitou Pontoons, all powered by Suzuki Outboards, are in stock now with new boats arriving daily. Dan Southside Marine is located just six blocks west of 35W on 98th Street in Bloomington, or shop online at dansouthsidemarine.com. Tom here, and I'm talking with Brad Huckle and Mike Bilski of North American Banking Company. We've talked before about how working with a community bank like North American Banking Company can benefit business owners. Do you have an example you could share with our listeners? Our customers at Homeco Insulation and Blaine have been banking with a big bank for many years, but suddenly their calls weren't getting returned and their banker was unresponsive to their business needs. You can imagine their frustration. They had a successful business, wanted to expand, and their bank cut them off. They were ready to move on from their big bank. When they referred to us, we knew they wanted to work with a community bank that would be responsive and would take the time to understand their business and its needs. That sounds like a perfect fit. I know it can always reach out and not only talk to an actual person, but I'm talking to an experienced lender. They've told us the same thing, Tommy. Look, I know Brad and Mike and I trust them with my banking. My whole family does. So why not bank with my banker, North American Banking Company, a better banking experience member fdic and equal housing lender you all have helped build my pillow into the incredible company it is today and have trusted in mike lindell to give you a great night's sleep mike's latest incredible deal is on the giza dream sheets which you've heard me rave about before that's for sure these sheets are made from the world's best cotton giza they are ultra soft and breathable yet extremely durable right now the giza dream sheets at its lowest price ever. These sheets are 60% off, coming in as low as $39.99 with promo code TOM. Hello, is there anybody in there? Just not if you can hear me. It was exciting because it was dynamic. Oh, I agree. Yeah. Oh, that's exactly what I'm talking about. The, the, the attracted. We're talking, Mike Elvan and uh, we just talked about, we got about another 10, 10 minutes left in this segment. But uh, Professor and Mary Ann just got here, so that was good. <laughs> the Professor and Mary Ann. What do you think? It's brilliant. But Mary Ann, in this particular case, is a man. So it's just the way it's going. What's up, you two? <laughs> I haven't called worse. That's okay. Well, that's true. I, did. I never have, of course, as you know. <laughs> yeah. No, we just, Mike was reminiscing, looking back on, and, and I think you have to be a certain age to understand what we're talking about. The joy of walking into a record store back in the old days and actually yeah. picking up an album and hearing it play in the store, and then you could go over and put something on the record player if you wanted to. It's, there's nothing like that anymore, Mike. No. There's nowhere to go anymore. When I, you know, when I was probably a senior in high school, which of course is the late '60s, um, I used to. And of course, I went to high school in the U campus, so um, I'd go down to one of the coffee shops. You know, like the Extempore. Uh, oh sure, uh, absolutely. New Age coffee the butt shop, of course. But they had. <laughs> Did they, you have a beret? <laughs> Mike <laughs> with a beret. I want to see that. One. Uh, no. no I, uh, I, I, I'm not don't the kind think of guy telling who, the truth. I can't Ooh. wear a hat, you know, with with dignity. I, some people can. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can't do it. Um, but you know, you so I, I'd go down there, and they had a little. I, I wouldn't even call it a stereo at the time. I don't know what it was, Just but it was a turntable. It was it. a turntable, yeah. and people would come in, 
with with the with a new album, and they'd put it on there, and yep. everyone would gather. And I remember, I definitely remember the day a guy came in with with the Revolver album. Oh God! And I mean, it was what like so, somehow the word spread, you know, and the, and the number of people in the coffee shop like tripled in the space of ten minutes. I'm telling There's you, a place uh, I think it's called the Blackbird Cafe, and I want to say it's 38th and Nicollet. Great little breakfast joint, but they have a turntable mm. set up on the bar and a That's bunch of records, wonderful. and you can just pull something out and spin That's it. That's great. It is cool. cool. Winchester Cathedral. Winchester <laughs> Cathedral. <laughs> it's so funny to focus on that because that was I one know. of the first things I learned to play on. Oh, trumpet. everybody did. I think. <laughs> That's the first song I ever sang in public. That's true. I think. I, what was I? About? And the last, 13? probably. <laughs> Sorry, oh. sorry, blew oh, up. Oh, this is how it's gonna go. Okay, <laughs> we'll see. How, you know, you know how it goes, Mike. If I can, attack. Uh, if I can be of any help, I could hold your coats. Yeah, just let me know. have a coat. <laughs> I know, but it's a yeah, metaphor, Tom. I know it's a <laughs> metaphor, Tom. Well, thank you, <laughs> thank you, you, instructor. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. A this. metaphor. No, it's just it was just a whole different world. Yeah. The music was really part of your life. Now it's you're just part of their life. Mm-hmm. They were part of your life. Now you're just part of the music world, and it just doesn't feel the same. It's it's unfortunate. And not to be a kiss ass because it was well prior to your career at KQ. But there was a time, I think pre seventy five or six, that that was a great music station. It really was. Oh, it was. I mean, yeah, they played a, anything. Yeah, that's and true. And I learned so much just as a kid listening to that, sitting in my bedroom in Minnetonka. Oh, yeah. With and the then, good vibe and, DJs. And it's why I oh, hate yeah. Heart, because it, whatever that summer was, it might have been 75 or 76 that they went corporate. Yeah. And the way I knew that it was over is they played Barracuda about every four minutes. <laughs> it's a great song. Oh, so that was, you don't 80, need to hear that was 84? No, I think this was 75 or 6. Really? Yeah. God, I didn't remember that far back. You know, I, I don't. Tack Hammer, baby. I don't hear the morning show because obviously I'm asleep. I don't <laughs> Do they still play Against the Wind like three times a week? In the morning? Yeah. No, we don't. We weren't playing any music in the morning, but now they should well, no, return not, to play. Oh, that's right. They don't play any, yeah. Because yeah. I, I heard that like 800 now. times in my 25 oh, years I know. at it's, the station. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Here's, a, here's the new one from Aerosmith. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, there you go, yeah. exactly. But it's still better than having a job. You know what I mean? That's right. <laughs> no oh, heavy yeah, lifting. For heavy lifting, I call on you. That's not going to be a problem. <laughs> oh, you know what he's talking about? You want to hear the story about me doing that? So we should tell our guests what's going on. Yeah. This is actually the tail end of the first hour of the podcast. When we take a break and start Car Selling Secrets, we'll get to all things automotive right now it is we what will. we call a yes. potpourri of stories so but only for only for about nine more minutes that's going to be it go ahead mr mover man so uh mike is on uh, wheel of fortune and he won and then i lost and then you lost in the big puzzle but you won a lot of prizes yeah yeah <clears throat> mike calls me he goes uh i don't know if you noticed or not but uh one of the things I won on Wheel of Fortune is a roll of carpeting. I said, yeah, okay. Oh, he also won a a uh, plaster Dalmatian. The budgets must have been a little smaller. A little, spy, a little well, smaller. Yeah, well, you didn't get, exactly. yeah, of course, you didn't get money in those days. No, and by the way, right? I believe I was the first and only person ever to claim the Dalmatian first. Yeah, I think you're right. Everybody else would say, oh, you got 180 left. Okay, I'll take the Goddamn Dalmatian. Dalmatian. I took it first. <laughs> he wanted the Dalmatian. I wanted that. Okay, so this is back in the day when I used to be a big power lifter. I used to do a lot of heavy, you know, power lifting and all that stuff. And so I was much more muscular than I am now. 
he calls me, he goes, listen, I need your help. Uh, they brought this roll of carpet over, and the thing weighs a ton. And I said, oh, yeah, no problem. I'll come over and help you with it. So I get over there, and there's a giant that was, what, about probably three feet in it diameter? Big, yeah. <laughs> it was a huge roll of carpet. I said, so where do you, where do you want to put it? And he goes, upstairs. Well, of course. <laughs> I said, of course you want to put it upstairs. Why wouldn't you want to put it upstairs? I go, okay, well, I'll grab uh, the low end so you know, I'll carry most of the weight up. He goes, what do you mean? I said, well, when we bring it up there, he goes, what do you mean we? <laughs> I said, well, when we bring the carpet, he goes, I'm not helping. Hey, hey, hold on a second. You didn't help either. Don't lie. Who held the door open? That's right. He did hold the door open. <laughs> Honest guy, that thing must have weighed 500 pounds. You really? Oh, Are it was kidding? heavy, man. See, I knew it was heavy. I didn't know it was that. Oh, it was heavy. That thing was huge. It was huge, yeah. <laughs> See, anything over 50 pounds might as well weigh 300 pounds. For and me. it was a bit cumbersome, too, Mike. Yes, That's the it other was. part of it. Yes. It's like, okay, let me carry it Finding like this. that <laughs> center of gravity could have been tough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. God, Gelfand, you backstabber. I'll never forgive <laughs> you. Lewis and Clark could do it. Yes, Lewis and Clark. I don't know they had carpeting, though. Well, they had those big-ass heavy canoes. Yes, they did. They hadn't There's invented no fiberglass or aluminum yet. So, What was the name of that almost, the, the, the takeoff on Lewis and Clark? Almost Heroes? I think it was I, Almost I'm Heroes. I'm really? not aware of that. Oh, God, it's very funny. The Chris Farley thing? Is it Chris Farley? Uh, I'm pretty sure, yeah. I can't yep. remember. And what? who is the star? Chris Farley, Matthew Perry, Matthew Eugene Perry was Levy. Star, yeah. Yeah. Oh, Ooh. Eugene Levy was Director so good in it. Was Christopher Guest. Christopher Guest. What's this called? Like it. It's, it's called, called Almost, Almost Heroes. Heroes. It's about it's about Lewis and Clark going across the United States, but it didn't quite work out the way it did. <laughs> well, I've never seen a Chris Guest movie I didn't like. Speaking oh, of which, they just announced they're doing Spinal Tap too. I heard. Well, no no screenplay though. Did you see that? No. They're going to ad lib the whole damn thing. Ooh. Well, huh. well they can either go very good or very bad. Well, the first one, they claim they ad libbed that whole thing. That, including Paul Shaver going, kick my ass. Just go ahead, kick my ass. <laughs> that was very funny. Artie Fufkin. Artie Fufkin, yeah. Artie Fufkin. Well, what were their names again in Spinal Tap? Their well, names... with Nigel Tufnell Nigel was Tufnell. Christopher Guest. Yes. And he, he was, Pat, uh, I think he, <laughs> Jeff Beck. Body stunt double. Oh, God. And then so David St. Hubbins. David St. Hubbins was another one. There's Warren Smalls. Who is it? Eric, Derek Smalls. Derek, Derek Smalls, Smalls, Smalls the bass player. And mm-hmm. who was the fourth? Uh, who played the fourth? Was uh, there, were there four of them? I, I thought, thought there were only three. I of think there's only just three. I think there were only I three of them. Four. Let's see here. Oh, that's right, because the drummer kept exploding. Yes, he, mm-hmm. he, he kept having they, they, Choked on yeah. vomit, not his own. Mm-hmm. Spontaneous combustion, one of them, one of them, two of them exploded. The police choked to death on somebody some else's mysteries vomit. Are best left unsolved. <laughs> <laughs> that was a damn good movie. That's, uh, uh, what's his name? Rob Reiner. Well, yeah, I think it was actually Chris Guest that wrote it. Oh, though. he did, yeah, but yeah. Rob Reiner produced yeah. it. And he's going to produce this one, the too. The first rockumentary, if a you The rockumentary. Yes, it was a rockumentary. I forgot. Who the hell played uh, uh, Derek Smalls again, the bass player? That, was uh, uh, Harry Shearer. Harry Shearer. Yeah. Remember he got trapped in his pod? Oh, God, that's great. <laughs> we got canceled. He's playing his bass like this. <laughs> we got canceled in Boston, but Boston's not much of a college not town. Not much of a college town. <laughs> That's wonderful. You want to get an early start? Whatever. You're the boss. We, only, you we only got a couple of minutes left to put up anyway, so we may as well get started. Everybody we'll, we'll knows all the spinal tap lines anyway. So. Don't tell me that. I want to hear them over and over again. 
I, I did love that. I didn't think I was going to like that movie either. When I went to see it, I went, this is not going to be good. It's Because yeah. you know, I was in the Capitol Records, I think, at the time. That's 40 years ago, right? Yeah, I think it probably was. I think it's 40 years ago. So, yeah, 82, I, I was working for Capitol Records. So I just I went and I went, this is not going to be good. But The effect but, was somewhat lessened when the dwarf was... <laughs> Dancing around by being crushed by the Stonehenge prop. <laughs> the Stonehenge prop was like this big. <laughs> I'm sorry. We're going to move on. We're going to start doing Car and Secrets because I'll never shut up about rock and roll. I'll tell you what, honest to God, being in, being in that business was phenomenal. God, oh God, I'll never forget one. I'll close with this. So I'm working at Capitol. I'm backstage. Bob Seeger's in town. He's on Capitol Records. Bob, just a great guy to work with, a wonderful guy. But there was somebody back at, this is at the old Met Center, back when the Met Center was still up. And there was some guy doing security there. And he just thought, he had to prove to everybody what a tough guy he was. He's one of those kind of guys, I'm a tough guy. And he starts barking at me about something. I said, hey, I work for Capitol. I work with the band here. I'm supposed to be here. And he goes, where's your badge? And I said, they didn't give me a badge. He goes, we have to have a badge. I said, well, they didn't give me one. Where should I go? He goes, there's nowhere to go. You're just going to have to leave. I said, I can't leave. I'm working. He goes, I said, you have to leave. And I said, settle down, meatloaf. <laughs> Holy God, did he get mad. <laughs> so Bob Seeger comes out and he goes, would you two shut the F up? <laughs> God, what a prick that guy was. Settle down, meatloaf. <laughs> oh, he looked just like meatloaf. He did, only a little fatter. <laughs> You know, that one. Well, marbled, Milo. Marbled, <laughs> yes. Highly marbled. Did you hear them? Oh, oh, God, I just, I almost asked him if he listened to the KQ Morning Show this morning. Did you hear that? That was close, man. You getting up before noon? Well, I, I told you also, I, I think I can say this. I, I don't want to insult anyone, but I told you. No, why would you? I told you, like, one of the big reasons that I have, I find it very difficult to listen to the morning show. It's because there's always a straight line hanging there. I know. And I want to yell out the punchline. I line. know. And I'm not Believe there, me. and I can't do it. Well, get off your ass. Let's yeah, go. I know. I know. Okay, it's sad. I, it's just you, sad. You have to repeat your line to these two because they've never heard it. Uh -oh. You could do the director's cut. You could replay the That's audio what I do. You're right. and then just make comments. Okay, we're going to take a break, but I'm going to tee it up with uh, I walk in one morning K, uh, KQRS, and Mike is already there, which I was very concerned about. He beat me there. I'm like, what? How'd that happen? That's when you pulled me aside and said, you're never going to make it in these hours, are you? And yes. I said, no, I'm not. <laughs> he, I walk in, and he has his face in both his hands like this. He's just leaning over in both his hands over his face. And I said, and I quote, what's the matter, Mike? And Mike said. Did I, did I, I was this about my marital relations? Yeah, it might be. So that was the day that I, yeah. I guess, yes. I guess that probably was the first time I said that. Yes. That, you know, I, I had finally realized that my wife and I had just one thing in common, which was we both hate me. <laughs> so that was a good show. But later on I realized, you know, their marriage is built on less. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're going to take a break and come back with Car Selling Secrets, ladies and gentlemen. Yay!